0: Hello and welcome to this week's 1201 podcast. Once again, my name is Callum Watts and I am not here with Callum Roper.
1: Hello there, everyone.
0: And Bradley Orsop.
1: Hi there, folks.
0: And this week we are joined by our special guest, Harry Parekh, who has written a very excellent article called Apostates as a Hidden Population of Abuse Victims for uh the journal of interpersonal is it violence it This is, is violence yeah. yes yes is it, is it um,
2: violence?
0: <laughs> uh, who is especially interested in religion and politics his his interest was spiked by our uh, discussion on the matter with seth goddard a friend of the show uh, a couple of weeks ago and he's going to talk about to uh give us his views on that um a little bit later But also, we're going to talk first uh, about uh, the news this week. Um, Thanks, by the way. uh, No problem. (laughs) The uh, lockdown is still in progress and sees no sign of abating in the short term. However, increasingly, governments across the world are starting to think about their exit strategies, and we are all thinking about the world beyond. Coronavirus. Uh, What's going to happen? What should uh, the what should we be arguing for uh, when the lockdown eventually lifts? It's going to be going on for possibly up to eighteen months. Chris Whitty, the um, government's chief scientific advisor. Uh, has said that it will probably we will probably have to be taking part in some form of social distancing at least until Christmas. Whether that means a full lockdown or or something less than that, we don't know. Uh, in the meantime, um, some people have been pushing for radical policies to deal with uh, crises like this in the future and which might have uh, further benefits going forward one of them is universal basic income now of course we know that a lot of people are being furloughed at the moment they're getting 80 percent of their wages through their employer Um, but that doesn't really help self-employed people who are getting some support but only if they meet certain conditions Personally, I feel like it would be much more reasonable if we just had a flat form of welfare, a universal basic income for everyone, or sometimes called a citizen's income. Uh, a petition has been sent round for that, but unfortunately uh, the uh, front bench of the Labour Party has refused to sign it. Um, do you have any more information on that, Uh, uh
1: Yeah, so um, apparently over 170 MPs and peers uh, called for this uh, introduction of UBI in light of the current crisis that we find ourselves in, um, and and basically that the Labour front bench has has rejected it outright, saying we agree that c- the COVID crisis has confirmed that the current so- social security system isn't fit for purpose, but they didn't go far enough to say that we need these reforms. Now I think personally that. It needs to happen. We need to make a radical change, not just for now, not just a UBI now, but we need universal basic income beyond this crisis, because when we do have issues uh, impacting us again in the future, because we know how unpredictable the economy is, we know the situation we found ourselves in in 2008 and subsequent years, we know how bad universal credit is, then I think universal basic income is a great way to provide stability for people in the gig economy on zero hour contracts, that aren't very stable, that can't find a job, because it's very likely that we're going to lose a lot of jobs in the light of this crisis. It's not just the fact that the furlough scheme is currently in place, but when that finishes, companies might have to dump workers. They might have to say, sorry, we can't afford to keep you. So then what's going to happen? We can't return to a time of mass unemployment. I think that's extremely dangerous and it puts a lot of people at risk. So we need to have a new system basically a new deal for people so ubi does need to support them and i think the labor party should be doing this it should be supporting such a radical policy that will make a difference for so many people mm. do you agree with that bradley
3: um i i think it is disappointing to to see um start starmer's response to this i think you know it's a, a first proper test of his leadership really um and mm. and along with his sort of uh his focus on when's the lockdown going to end rather than, you know, focusing on where's the protection for frontline staff. It is a little bit disappointing to to see this, um, these first couple of tests for his leadership. Um, I think with UBI, I've seen mixed stuff actually on the left um, about in the long term whether UBI is is a useful policy or not. But I think certainly in in the short term um, to to deal with the current crisis, it's a no-brainer really, isn't it? There there isn't really any of the proper option. And um, and and I think it would actually it would help with the pandemic as well because if if people are secure in their financial situation then they're going to be obviously everyone still wants lockdown to be over they want they want to be able to get out and about um but I think the, the biggest reason for a lot of people at the moment they want lockdown to be over is because it's putting a real strain on their finances so if we do have a proper system in place that reduces one of the reasons people have um for potentially breaking the lockdown or or trying to undermine it
0: hm i know that um one of the arguments uh against uh universal basic income um, has actually come from uh trade unions sometimes um who have argued that um keeping things as they are uh to wherein for example with the uh furlough payments they come through your employer so it keeps that link your, it it ensures that I think the argument goes that it ensures that your employer still has an obligation for your welfare and to some extent. um, And if that is removed, then employers can just say, well, we're just going to pay lower wages and so on. Um, the, uh, and that the the argument instead should not be so much about raw income, but rather uh, universal basic services, which is something that I know Callum has advocated in the past.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think uh, UBS is is the way forward. It's research done on it by uh, I think it was University College London. They looked at it and said it's far more affordable. So if you if you're worrying about how much it's going to strain the government coffers, as it were. UBS is far more affordable. It also means that people have those basic services in place beyond what we already have. So we're talking about a a real cradle to grave healthcare, which will include old age care. We're talking about a proper education system. But we're also looking at things like transportation, which is completely revolutionary for this country. And likewise, with things like access to the internet, which we spoke about before it in naturally it's a policy that we should be looking at more and more, certainly in the light of this crisis. people's reliance on the internet is huge, and other things that it includes I think the proposals include things like justice, so you should have a right to a lawyer so uh it went to defend you in in court, which isn't guaranteed now it's a means tested thing. Universal basic services are far more affordable because we all pay in our sh- fair share like we do with the n h s the difference is that it protects those services from cuts because they're universal and they're basic and if they're basic you can't go any lower than that and I think they they are the way forward but I think UBI in the light of this crisis is something we should also be exploring so I think it's it's about getting that balance between the two doing proper research and seeing what the appetite is amongst the the general public for for real proper services that support them as well as perhaps having a UBI in some form for people in the gig economy on zero hours contracts or that aren't able to work long enough because maybe they've got childcare uh, that they need to provide for their children.
0: Yeah, because it's one of the, um, and I think we mentioned as well in a previous podcast as well, uh, when we talked about how the government has abolished rough sleeping, let's remind ourselves, the government has abolished rough sleeping, Um, always worth repeating, um, that part of universal basic services could be providing everyone with some form of accommodation, with with no strings attached. Um, That's a possibility. Uh, The thing about means testing as well, of course, is one of the reasons that the NHS has survived for as long as it has, while other parts of the welfare state have been whittle the way is because everyone pays for it, as you say, uh, and everyone gets an equal payout. It's not means tested in any way, shape or form. Um, And what that means is once you you start means testing something, effectively, you're drawing a line um, for those who receive it and those who, who don't receive it. And the people above that line are effectively paying for the people who are below that line in terms of income. Uh, To use it, which then um, you know take any moral ethical uh, question out of the equation, they are going to start resenting that over time, rightly or wrongly, Um, and then that weakens the political arguments for it Um, because humans are empathetic creatures to a degree, but not always, Um, and as we've seen that in the neoliberal area era, people can be manipulated into believing that poor people deserve ill treatment because they're poor, and therefore that becomes a political argument. If the means testing is removed and everyone's getting the same treatment, that problem doesn't exist. So I see your arguments uh, about universal basic services versus UBI, but this is still... um, One of the things I would say that's in favour of UBI is that um, it's it basically it may it gives you a baseline and it gives you leverage when it comes to uh arguing for wages in in one, on one level it also means that you're you can't be forced to take a job or you know forced to stay in a job even though it's miserable um and and therefore it gives you more leverage when it comes to to negotiating for better working conditions and pay um which is obviously something that the tories fear right that's yeah. why they they don't they, they don't want to introduce it um and so i'm somewhat perplexed as to why uh, the labour front bench especially when it's something that's been endorsed by so much of the rest of parliament um is, uh it is against it because and and you can't say that it's really unaffordable because um we've just seen 320 billion uh, pounds, and there will be more magic House of thin air to deal with the coronavirus crisis. So that money is there. Um, obviously, there is a concern about inflation, um, yeah. but you st- but there are ways to control that. Um, you use taxation primarily. Um, this yeah. is this is basically modern monetary theory. Uh, you use taxation to ensure that uh, the, the government isn't just printing money into the economy and none of it's coming back in, um, and you control the flow. This is the sort of state intervention, though, that a neoliberal government of any stripe, and certainly not a Tory one, is going to be very reluctant to use. Um, Bradley, do you have any thoughts?
3: Well, I mean... Oh, yeah. yeah. I think I think if you go long long term, it it has to be rooted in in an expansion of social ownership, is not it? You you have to expand the resources that are owned collectively by by the people, um, rather than private capital. You know, whether, whether it's pr- providing energy or, or or food or things, um, you have to look at things like national ownership or um, workers cooperatives. So I I think mm-hmm. I think that's the hesitancy some people have on the left about UBI at least um, is is what what it would look like under under a, a government that doesn't have social ownership and workers democracy baked into it already um, if if it could actually just be a way um of, of helping corporations get rid of get rid of staff uh, uh, and increase in profit um so i think long term it we have to do a lot of the stuff we want to do anyway like like nationalization um like like bringing things back back into public ownership um, I think that that's the only way it really works, uh, viably long term. Because I mean, I mean, even higher taxation really, to some degree, is is the same thing as nationalisation in that it says more of the money that you have, you know, to rich people, more of the money you have now actually is public money. So it, in a way, you, you can see higher taxation as sort of the same thing as nationalising resources. It's just it's just monetary resources rather than physical ones.
0: Yeah sorry Callum I, I did notice your hand was up but only after I'd already introduced Bradley or well, do you want to come back on that?
1: Yeah um, I, I think I, I, I agree with, if, with Bradley's point that it's this is not just the only thing that we need to do to have a truly transformative economy that serves everybody but I think what it does do and I think you alluded to it Callum that it does encourage more political participation because if people have more money in their pocket, they're more secure. And if you're more secure, you're more likely to go on strike for better conditions and better pay because you haven't got to live paycheck to paycheck, which is, which is good. That's, that's a good thing, but it means you can be going out striving. You can be an activist because there's not, there's not as much financial risk for you if you have that safety net of a universal basic income. And I think if, if, If you look at the economy as a whole, if people have more money to spend in their pockets, then they're more likely to spend it in the economy. And I think it will be seen as more of of as a multiplier. So for every pound that people are spending, you've got to remember some of that's paying someone else's wages. It's also going to be paid in VAT and then further uh, taxes on on the profits on their business rates as well. So I think, actually, it's, it's, a good, it's a good thing for this country that more people have that bit more money to spend. They're in a safer position politically. They're in a safer position economically, which means that they're in a safer position within society. And I think that's only a positive thing.
0: Yeah, it's because uh, the thing that strikes me as well about universal basic services is, to me, correct me if I'm wrong, but it basically just sounds like mid-20th century social democracy. You know, and which is the tradition, to be fair, that I would say that Keir Starmer is most likely from. Although, obviously, something I've said about Keir Starmer in the past is that we really don't know his politics at this point, Um, uh, apart from uh, the refusal to back UBI at this juncture. Um, So, we could probably. I don't know, but can we take it for granted that uh, a, a, the next Labour government would definitely be in favour of universal basic services, one would hope? Um, but uh, because it's because it's from that sort of soft left, social democrat position, that would be my assessment at the moment. Um, we've seen um, Keir Starmer take his first steps at PMQs um, a lot of people in the media agreed on one word to describe it, which was forensic. Uh, obviously, he is uh, a lawyer. Um, I think they all I think, get the strong impression that they probably decided that was going to be their line before the, that he had even stepped out onto the stage, as it were. Um, what do we think of his performance so far? Did you actually watch it?
1: Yeah, I I, I gave it a watch. Um I mean, forensic seems to be the term that has been used. I think his own campaign were using it as well. Yeah. Um, I think. I think he he made an interesting point, which actually I would agree with, multiple times during PMQs. That he said we would support the government where they're doing good things, and we would criticise them when they're doing bad things. I don't. In in the light of this crisis, I think that's that's fine. But I don't think he's going into them hard enough in in their in their failures. If they're really going to hold them to account, there's a number of failures leading up to the point that we're at now. And they're continuing to make them. And he's obsessed with this exit strategy.
0: Mm. I think he's was going that, to be truly... Was optimistic. that mentioned at PMQs?
1: I, I don't strategy. know. Really. I know he, he, was, he was holding to account on the, de- on the numbers of deaths. Uh, I think PPE was also discussed. I... I imagine that the uh, exit strategy was also mentioned. I can't confirm it or deny it, but it seems to be the line at the moment from the leadership. That's all we're obsessed with. Mm-hmm. But I think that we're, we're a long way off that, despite what big companies want to be thinking, What, despite what they're saying, you know, with the likes of B&Q already reopening. I don't think that's an essential service and they should be shut straight away because if you see pictures of some of the queues outside, it's extremely dangerous. But I think... He's got the wrong line because there's so many failures on the part of the Conservative government at this moment regarding COVID-19, let alone everything else beforehand. And he's not holding them to account. And and that's that's, that's disappointing. I think he should be he, he should be taking them to pieces. He should be really going hard on them here. But I don't know whether he's trying to play this line of look good in the public eye and supporting the government. But I don't think you should be supporting the government if, they're, if they've if they got blood on their hands. You should be holding them to account and telling them that they've done wrong and we've got a better alternative to offer.
0: Yeah, obviously, it's um, he wants to play the statesman. That's the... And, and to be fair, that strategy might work. At the end of the day, he's got one single primary mission at the moment, which is to win the next general election. Um, and, you know, he was elected to to carry that out to be fair so far you know he hasn't done anything to contradict that um he is being the sort of aesthetic forensic loyally type uh, leader of the opposition people expected him to be um and his shadow cabinets okay he's made some um i would say unwise choices for junior ministers but the shadow cabinet itself um, obviously, he was playing up the the unity line. He puts Rebecca Long Bailey in as well uh, as a, a sort of um, a sign to the left that yes, we're we're going to have your people in here as well. Um, Lloyd russell Mole is another one. He's the uh, shadow. This is the shadow environment minister? I actually thought that it was um, Ed Miliband. What yeah, um,
3: doing now? Then
1: he's got a slightly junior position to that. I think it's. Oh,
0: what is it? He is... Um, just give me a second. He's Shadow Minister for Natural Environment and Air Quality. There we
1: go. That
0: sounds nice. Uh, so, bit of a lengthy title. Um, sp- uh, sorry, sp- um, but not in normal times, you probably spend a lot of time out in the countryside doing that. Um, but... Um, so that's, that's his role. So he's in the Shadow Cabinet. It's Cabinet-level um, appointment. One of only three, um, I think, ministers from uh, Corbyn's era to remain in the Shadow Cabinet. And interestingly, in the last day, there's been uh, an article in the Daily Mail, and because it's the Daily Mail, a lot of other outlets are picking up on it as well. Um, there's a clip of him from months ago from the look of it saying uh, that the the government has killed uh over a hundred thousand people with austerity actually it's probably an underestimate by the way um the, the headline says they've killed a hundred thousand people I, the, the, when i initially read it and this will be the perception for most people is he might be referring to coronavirus obviously isn't true because it's killed twenty thousand. still lost people but not quite a 100,000. So it's neither an accurate reflection of uh, coronavirus, but it is an act uh, underestimation for uh, austerity. And it's absolutely true. Um, yeah. They are calling for him to uh, resign or be thrown out. There's no indication from Keir Starmer that he's actually going to do that. Um, but what struck me as interesting about it um, was that the clip that's on the Daily Mail's website which I had to watch because that was the link I was given um, was from him making a speech to a room full of people which means that it was probably at least a couple of months ago Um, why do you think this has come out why do you think this has come out now um, uh, Callum
1: Uh, well I don't know really I think it Partly, we know some of the headlines that we might discuss later regarding a certain Dominic Cummings. Um, And there's a lot of negative press around the government at the moment. I think there's also, you've got to consider that uh, Lloyd Russell Moyle himself is a left-wing MP in the Shadow Cabinet, something that is quite rare these days. We need to remember that they don't like people like him have in any position of power or influence whatsoever. And they've basically sat on this video and they've released it at a time where the party's trying to bring itself together, calling for him to be uh, thrown out or calling for him to resign, which I think is ridiculous. I think it's just extremely irresponsible of them at this time to even be throwing things like that. But the, the, the important thing we should be bearing in mind is that these accusations that he's putting to the Tories what he's saying in terms of the numbers they're actually accurate numbers they're based on an actual academic study into the impact of austerity and that's you know for want of a better word that's quite a conservative estimate of the deaths that's happened so we've got to consider actually this the source it's coming from is the Daily Mail I think it's an attack on the Labour Party for the sake of attacking the Labour Party. And I wholly stand behind him and his comments because, as you said, uh, Callum, they're completely true. They're completely true numbers. If anything, it's a larger number. And this government has a lot of blood on its hands. And rightly so, it's good to see someone in the shadow cabinet holding them to account. Mhm.
0: And, and hopefully, um, hopefully, Keir Starmer won't fall for it. Um, I, I think, think it would do... Some do some damage. I think it was certainly fan the flames, especially in the uh, in the context of uh, the leaked report from last week. Um, I think it was quite good as well. Just staying on the uh, Labour news for the moment. Uh, the um, the independent report into the report uh, on anti-Semitism. Uh, which Keir Starmer and Angela Rayner announced, the terms of reference for that have now been set, um, with the priority to deal with the contents of the report. So the concerns about the delays uh, around dealing with anti-Semitism cases uh, and the gross discrimination, uh, discriminatory language used by uh, party staffers that was revealed in the report as well, that is going to be the priority of the report. Obviously, I think they are obliged to some extent to, uh, to investigate the leak as well, because there has been a GDPR breach. Of course they have to do that, but it's not the main priority, which I think a lot of people feared would swamp the, the more necessary, um, contemporary concern concerns about the way that the party was being run at that time. um, so, do you think that uh, is this is all this um, positive, uh, Bradley? Do you think that it's uh, it's good to see that the the reports being prioritised correctly? Um, do you think Keir Starmer will stick by his guns and keep Russell Moyle in the cabinet as well?
3: Um, I I think it is positive. I think they are right. It, it does need to be reported, uh, investigated, and I think the way I think the way it was done does obviously bring up issues from a GDPR perspective, but also from an employment rights perspective. Um, so obviously the, the individual is concerned that their union has, has raised issues around what's happened um, and, and potential risk that those people have been put under. So I think, I think it is right that that is part of the scope of, of the investigation that that's looked into. Um, but but yeah, it's, it's good to, to see Star moving on it quickly, but we'll wait and see what comes as a result of the investigation. And, um, perhaps only in the labor party could you have a, a a report on a report um but <laughs> we'll we'll wait we'll wait to see what comes of it but uh I, if even a fraction of what was in that leaked document is, is true i don't think those individuals should ever hold a position of authority within the labor movement again really um it, it in terms of the the cabinet um yeah i mean it, it's a bizarre on story isn't it maybe Miller just got a bit tired of running coronavirus stories so they they decided to to switch tack for one day um, but it, it's just true, you know, that austerity has and is now in the form of this pandemic, leading to unnecessary deaths. Um, and it, it's it's the bloody job of the opposition to come out and say that. It, that's what the opposition yeah. should be doing. They should be raising these points. They should be pointing to the gross failures. Well, they're not even failures of the they they're, they're deliberate public policy. Um, yeah. They're either- yeah, and, you have to remember that and that, that's what the opposition should be doing. They should be pointing those yeah. things out. So, to to me, it's a non-story. Opposition opposes. That, that's what the headline should read.
0: <laughs> yeah, effectively. Callum, do you want to come in?
3: Yeah, you know, I I completely agree with
1: what Bradley's saying. I, I think the the way that the report did come out is 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 unfortunate because there is a number of redactions have to be made. In terms of protecting individuals' names and all, the, and all the rest of it. But I don't know whether it would have actually come out, whether it would have actually seen daylight. I would like to hope that a report of that length and of that severity in terms of its implications would have been released regardless, you know, and it, it would have been seen by members and the proper action would have been taken. But hopefully, what it does mean is that the action will be taken and the party's bureaucracy is 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 not ever seen to be acting like it it allegedly has been ever again because how it is behaved is is appalling our own our own party staff effectively sabotaging or allegedly sabotaging our election chances is is abhorrent we We can't allow it as members as activists as people that have knocked doors spent endless hours upon hours out there. And then, to be effectively betrayed by our own people, we can't allow it it can't go mm. on
0: and and of course we and of course we've covered it before uh, as well um, speaking yeah. of inappropriate comments, we've alluded to this already, but we also know that um we now it now appears to be the case that the government's um in supposedly independent um, scientific body sage. Uh, has been compromised uh, by the uh, presence of senior government advisers, including the uh, much maligned Dominic Cummings, the villain of Brexit. Uh, the he has been the 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 idea of this scientific advisory group for emergencies um, is that. Uh, They are a group of top, top scientists who are supposed to give impartial advice to the government on the present situation. They're not decision makers. They are supposed to just analyse the current situation, present the facts to the government, and then allow the government to make a decision based on that now. The reason why that division exists is because uh, scientists... Are specialists in their fields, they understand the facts, but of course politicians they have to balance those against wider impacts you know, like the economy for example um, and obviously interests that they represent as well uh, scientists aren't there to do that the presence of Dominic Cummings and his lackey, whose name I forget, um, on that uh, committee means that that is disrupted uh it's it's mud the waters are then muddied and we know from the accounts of people who sat on that committee that he was expressing a view um, not just passively listening to these meetings as might be appropriate i suppose um, but actually actively taking part in the meetings and because he is representing the government he is the authority in the room and so it seems to me like the early days of this crisis, that the, it's shining some light on why the government was saying at the beginning, um, we're following the science, and you're just going to have to accept that some of your relatives are going to die. Because that is the view of Dominic Cummings, filters through SAGE, going straight to the government and out of the mouth of uh, Boris Johnson. Would that be an unfair uh you know, thesis badly. Uh
3: no, I think I think I think it's fair. Um it, it is worrying and I, I think it's uh think when you hear stories like this, particularly when it concerns Dominic Cummins, I, I increasingly feel like it it's a very similar strain of government that perhaps he, he would like um to to the way Trump runs things. Um I think it's this, this sort of the new new right, isn't it? Um, mm. this sort of di- distrust of, of sort of experts and I mean I think uh, I shared a video the other day of um, of nurses be- being people protesting against nurses and healthcare workers in the US um, and 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 abuse at nurses that were doing their job in the US out um, from American protesters who, who don't think the virus is real they think coronavirus is a government conspiracy um, c- created by, by the left and by socialists and all the rest of it. Um, and, and, you know, so they're going in these big groups to, to protest. I'm sure we've seen that. Um, God knows how many of them are getting infected there and how many deaths that will lead to on its own. Um, but it, it the result of that, this is relevant to Dominic Cummins, I promise, it, the result of that, it, it, the reason for it is because Trump has, over the last five years, fostered an environment where people don't know who to believe. They don't know what what sources to trust anymore everything's fake news except for if it comes out of the mouth of trump and um, so so they they don't trust anything there's there's no media sources they can go to that they, they trust except for maybe a small collection of, of trump support and publications um, and and experts and and the establishment whatever trump takes that to mean has been so vilified and so distrusted that, that, that there's no trust there whatsoever um, and I think we saw a bit of a similar thing with Brexit in this sort of disdain yeah. for experts um, and expertise. And I, I, I think Cummins is of that ilk. I think he he likes to, to come across as a bit of a sort of a, a maverick and an intellectual, but I, I don't think he, he's really bothered about the facts and, and about what, what the science is saying. And, it, and it, it's a more sort of sinister form of governance. I think we would see if Cummins got his way on a lot of things.
0: It's a bit like, um, you know, in the uh, in the Soviet era, for example, they had um, political officers accompanying military commanders, and in and in uh, probably in scientific bodies as well, uh, to make sure that everything's in in line with uh, what the government thinks. Um, and it's interesting that you know obviously that is uh, the model of socialism that's always so you know, perhaps justifiably vilified by the, uh, the by the the liberal uh, mainstream, but yet now the government is doing exactly the same thing to our professional bodies that are supposed to be giving impartial advice. What do you think, Calum?
1: Yeah, I think that political meddling in in what is really important advice, whether it be on COVID or whether it be on future issues that arise. I think there should be that separation. And scientists should be able to give sound advice without being meddled with by the likes of Dominic Cummings. He I think he's on record as having quite a disdain for experts and for the bureaucracy. And yet he's probably at the head of that bureaucracy and he's Basically, he's pretending to be an expert in something that he isn't by sitting on this panel, by influencing the decisions that they make. And I think that it's, it's risking people's lives by doing that. And that's that's extremely dangerous. Nobody, whatever political persuasion they, they are, should be meddling in, in what is professional advice on such an important matter. Now, you know, you can have political debates about things. You can argue whether they make the right decision yourself. You shouldn't be interfering with that decision and therefore the government's decision in terms of advice, in terms of starting and finishing the lockdown, in terms of how far we go with the lockdown. I I, I it's just beyond me. But it, it doesn't surprise me that he does this. And he and I imagine many other figures in the government are doing this as well. Because there is a clear disregard for expertise and there's a clear disregard for public safety in, in the case of of this matter.
0: Mm-hmm. I think what we need to have is um, what we need to reintroduce into uh, our politics um, an understanding of that divide between the politician and the advisor. Um, it's been a long time, for example, since, um, you know, academic views were sought uh, at the top level of government. John MacDonald tried to bring it back uh, a little bit when he was the shadow chancellor he went on a very long uh, country-wide tour uh, about economics. I think it was called Ac- uh, Economics for the Many. Um, I participated in one in, in Lincoln uh, where they got the views of people who showed up. But they also had a panel of expert economists um, who would have advised uh, the government as well, including people like Guy Standing, for example, Um, Sadly, that was not to be. Um, I hope that's a strategy that that Keir Starmer does pick up on, because I think it's important to have experts advising the government um, on all matters of government, uh, including, obviously, science uh, and education, um, warfare as well, of course, um, or the lack thereof, we would hope, um, but also on matters of the heart, such as culture and religion. So uh if uh, and of course, as we mentioned earlier on, as we promised you, uh, we do have a special guest who has been extremely silent uh during uh this discussion uh so far. But uh Harry Perek is here. I assume you're still here, by the way. I have to say I haven't heard um I haven't heard a peep out of you so far. Um, for that to happen. Yeah. Um I understand that you wanted to reply to some of the discussion from the other week um would you like to sort of summarize what your thoughts are on that
2: yeah i i, I mean i listened to i listened to that podcast and i listened, and i read obviously i've also read the um the art uh, the the article that was also written in relation to um pluralism on the left and religion and i think that it takes a very um I mean, a, a lot of the kind of ways within the podcast where they were, you know, where the, where the author of the article was trying to highlight the, the issue and the need, and and trying to come up with um, ways to kind of address this and and find pragmatic kind of ways to to look at the issue that it is, and it, it just seemed as if it was just rather than it being specific or kind of um really concise, it just seemed to be a little bit of a rant in relation to um you know, that's just, you know, secularism doesn't exist and um and, you know, you can never cel- you can never separate uh religion and politics, um religious representation, pluralism. It, it it you know, it all just kind of seemed to mishmash a bit together and that's kind of how I saw the article as well. So I think that you know, and, and then and then basically, kind of just saying that nothing, none of this stuff kind of exists, and and here's where we're at. I think that um, it's, it's an. So what would you, what would
0: your perspective be then? Do you think that you know is it wrong to say that secularism? I've always thought of Britain as a fairly secular country, but obviously on the flip side, um, we are one of the few um, countries which has um, a state religion, technically. The Church of England. Um, We are one of only two nations in the world with clerics uh, in our legislature. Um, The other one, of course, being Iran. Um, So, um, what's your? Do do you so? Do you not feel that we're a secular country in in that respect?
2: I think I think this is the thing in that when you when you look at when you look at secularism and you're trying to understand what it is. and understand where it's at and where we're at. And then, you know, you can look at the kind of extreme angles of, of the way that the USA or even France have kind of understood secularism to be and kind of taken it in that in that context. But we're kind of looking at I mean I mean to be fair, within within secularism itself, we're looking at the the the, the kind of relationship of religious institutions from institutions of the state. So that they don't have that level of domination, or they don't have that level of um influence um within within the state, and then adding to that if you have a if you have a state that has very much um you know one one kind of um religious ideology that kind of pertains to it, so you've also got to think about the kind of freedom of thought and conscience and religion for everybody in relation to how that then is enacted and, and to ensure that you know no state is discriminating against anyone on the bounds of the religion or non-religion and that and their world view and and babo babaro's kind of um i might have really said that wrong but his view of how secularism is in that way is kind of something that a lot of people would agree with and would accept i think in the uk it's very secular in character. We have obviously the Church of England as the established church, and that obviously comes back to um, you know Henry VIII's fifteen thirty four, the Act of Supremacy, and and his his need to kind of challenge um, Pope Boniface and and kind of ensuring that um, the Union Sanctum um, wasn't didn't go through, um, so that the Catholic Church had entitlement and loyalty from everyone. Um, and I think that this is an interesting issue that um in the you know I think there's an interesting issue that in in fifteen seventeen martin luther who was a who's a um who's a priest basically highlighted that there's two kinds of righteousness it's one in the eyes of God and one in the eyes is is in the ages of the in the eyes of the world and I think that when we're looking at then secularism and we're looking at the way that secularism is now um we've got to be really careful to ensure that um, despite being an official Christian state that we're also aware that less than a fifth um, people are, are still members of the C of E, less than 2% of the population still attend services. The amount of flexibility that we have within that is quite high. And actually the privilege that then the religious or the Christian religion has within the nation in relation to having laws allowing religious parents priority to access State-funded schools, mandating Christian worship in all of those state schools, and allowing religious discrimination in its provision of public services, and on top of that, being in control of nearly a quarter of the state schools, having natural, um, being um, having state formally appointed bishops in in the um, in Parliament who also vote on legislation who aren't elected by um, the people. If you add that to the to the way that um, you look at the 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 kind of the pathway of people at the moment, you can kind of see a disconnect between what was and what is. I think that the state has to have a very clear understanding as to how it operates to support those most disadvantaged and to those that are most advantaged and whether you take Mill's harm principle or whether you look at rules of veil of ignorance. A lot of the times when you're looking at the rights of the few um, as well, you're, you're t- a lot of people would tend to not hold a very religious state as a result of that. I think that um, Bhagavan's kind of principal distance in, in the way that um, the state doesn't have to have strict rules about implementing uh, or intervening um, in religions, but can be made in context and it's dependent on the situation. And the religion, and as long as those issues are promoting um, the state kind of human right, you know, state's kind of secularism in relation to human rights, or equality, or gender equality, and etc., then surely that's that's fair enough. I think it's when we have to look at when there is discrimination in relation to things like I don't know um, caste discrimination in India, or or the the way that homosexuality is viewed, or or, um, or the abuse of people within religion, and. Um, that's when the state has a role then to kind of support the people that it that it aims to. And and I think that it can do the opposite as well. So you can look at, you know, providing that level of support and treatment to people that that have those religious needs in those ways as well. So you can look at the way that um, people from um, the Sikh religion are, are exempt from wearing uh, motorcycle helmets due to them having to wear their turbans for, to practice their religion. So it's about the ability for the state to be flexible within that um I think that that's that's really where we're at. It's not about just jumping into bed um, and going, We, as the article suggests, that like we just need to accept everything and, and, and embrace it and just bring it in. And da, 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 da. We need to provide a, a framework by which we can really kind of look at the things that might align and might not. What do you think, Bradley? You've got your hand up.
3: Uh, yeah, I was going to ask about, um, so, I mean, for me, I think the issue with, of religion uh, being involved in in the state and, and government is fairly clear-cut for me i'm a, I'm a pretty free and free secularist in the sense that religious power should should, should in no way intersect with, with state power and i think the more interesting question that was thrown up by seth that i, that I wasn't sure what to make of was around the relationship that political parties should have with, with religious movements so um seth made a dual argument for um the, the Labour party in particular reaching out to to various religious communities one because it's electorally savvy to do so to 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 ingratiate yourself, ingratiate yourself to the, those communities but he but he said there's also a deeper reason to do it and you know that, that we potentially have things to learn from different religious communities um without preferencing one or the other but he, but he said we should you know sort of be forging more links uh, and, and educating ourselves and their culture and, and things like that um, I'm interested what Harry thinks about that about so not so much state power, but but political parties, and let's look a little bit broader than maybe uh, activist movements and and groups on the left in general. And um, what what should their relationship be to, to different religious groups? Do you think, Harry?
2: I think this is this is where the kind of um, where the statement of no ideas above scrutiny, no person is beneath dignity, which I kindly borrowed from Magic Noirs. and I think that. When you look at that statement in itself, um, being able to learn from other people, being able to be aware of different cultures, different ways of working, different ways—I mean, the I article talks about different cooking styles and and whatnot. I think this is the this is the thing that it's it's not about. I I I don't see it. There's no. It's, it's human to to learn from different different ways of doing things. It's human to be able to. You know, explore and to figure things out, and to you know, be exposed to different experiences and things like that. And whether the left do it, whether the right do it, whether the centre do it, doesn't really. I, I don't really see a difference because welcome to being human. Um, I think the dip, what I'm trying to say is that um, it, it's 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 more about no idea being above scrutiny. So even if we even if we um, as a as a society we're very you know there's, there's so many different factions. Within society itself, it's about still being able to scrutinize an idea, but still maintaining the dignity of the person in doing so and I think that that's one of the major bits that people struggle with at the moment in that the left may seem to um struggle one way, and the right might stream, might seem might find it difficult to go on the other side of that um, yeah. yeah.
0: Just, just just coming from my experience a little bit, like um as I said in the previous in the last podcast where we discussed this, you know, I wasn't raised with uh, any particular religion. And so I wouldn't feel particularly comfortable even really critiquing Christianity too closely because it's not it's not part of my lived experience, uh to some extent. Um and there is I feel uh, 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 just looking at the sort of history of it, obviously, um, a lot of the secularism that we have in this country and across most of the world is welcome. Um, I think there should be a separation of church and state, so I understand the need for that as a as a as a historical uh, thing. But it has emerged because people who were raised as Christians, in our case. Railed against the idea of you know priests and bishops and so on being intimately involved in decision decision making uh within uh within government um so what i'm kind of what the question I'm sort of asking is how people who not just are secularists but have sort of been raised um in a a, a non faith way how should we react? To the the to the problems of uh, of religion in, in politics, if you see what I mean.
2: Yeah, so this is a really interesting point. In that, I think this is where it goes too far. In that, um, we, we, I think you know you, you say that you you know you're non-religious, and then you know that the issue of Christians or or people you know or bishops in the House of Lords is is based on people that were Christian and not anymore, and they're kind of contesting that. I think anybody really, I think anybody who's not elected that has a that has a vote um, should be contested, um, regardless of whether you've not been brought up in religion or you are. Um, Secondly, to be fair with you, um, the kind of bishop's view of where society is at or where you know where the UK nation is at at the moment isn't really representative at all either. Um, So you know it doesn't really hold on to that. But actually, what my being real kind of um, specific about what you've said, is that it, it goes, again, I think I think to be really clear, Callum, it goes back to no idea is above scrutiny, no person is beneath dignity. And I think that to, to assume that you can't challenge ideas um, and you can't challenge the idea of how people might do something um, based on the fact that you would... Over signify, or I mean, signifying dignity of a person is you know nobody's dignity. I think that's fair, but to not have the first part of that kind of quote is where this issue comes from. In that, if we can't question and, and if we can't question the ideas of the way that people are doing things, then how does society progress? It's kind of saying that you know in 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 communities within um, within nations within Africa or you know or, um you know where um where female genital mutilation is is rife due to cultural and traditional kind of views of the women there um should we or shouldn't we hold a view against that and i think that the view that we the, the thought that people feel that they can't hold a view or people feel that they can't suggest that actually this isn't very good because xyz which you know you know in relation to this issue um would seem kind of counterintuitive, and it wouldn't. And at the end of the day, um, if you look at what that practice is, it's culturally and traditionally there. It's not a religious issue. Um, and secondly, why wouldn't you have a say in something like that, or why wouldn't you have a thing to say in that? And why and what's stopping you from having a point of view on an idea that people are, that people are enacting? And I think you know, would you you know? And and I think that that's. That's where society needs to kind of become a little bit um, perhaps better in being able to have those conversations without feeling that, you know, a, offense of the person or offense is, is, is granted. At the end of the day, you're tackling the issue of the idea of genocide of, you know, so mutilating a female. Who is a child, or you know, or even the, even a boy within Jewish culture, it's not needed, um, and you can argue that very vehemently, and there shouldn't be any issue in doing so. And that open challenge, or that open challenge to the idea of of that practice, should 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 always have an opportunity. Um, why wouldn't you, Callum? Well, I think for me, that the, the issue is
0: that um, you, you you said that no idea is above scrutiny um but religion isn't just uh, about ideas it's also about culture um you know and that so for example you know if you're if you're critiquing circumcision for example you're critiquing a religious idea but there's also a whole community of people out there jewish people who may feel attacked by by that um likewise you know um if if um you know, if you if you talked about, uh, you know, FGMs, as you mentioned as well, there are religious groups that there, there will be people who get, you know, defensive about their their own culture being attacked. You know, I think that's my primary concern. It's not that you're just attacking ideas; it's that you're attacking identities as well. Um, and and people don't always respond very well to that.
2: This is where it goes wrong. In that it's it's not. a the thing. The dignity of the person is still no one's below dignity, right? The thing is, is that you if you take that view, Callum, then then nothing is um, is on the table in relation to questioning, understanding, deliberating, and coming up with an outcome or coming up with an understanding of it. At the end of the day. If we don't have a society where we're able to question what people are doing, and if we're going to use the notions of religion, tradition, and culture, then technically we're scapegoating and we're providing a, um, we're literally, what we're doing is we're providing, you know, an opportunity for dark things and hidden renderings to be concealed within social norms within that community. And I think that even if, um and 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 to equate it you know you if you look at religion, religion is based on you know it's based on scripture and it's based on doctrine it's based on what's written um in itself tradition is basically the rules of people that have you know it's the rules of dead people that we continue doing based on the reasons based on the fact that they used to do it and culture is something that is socially cohesive and brings people in now. The thing is, is that if we're questioning the way in which people do something, we're questioning the ideal and we're questioning the idea of what it's related to, I've never questioned, the, I've never attacked a person. Now, yes, a religious, cultural, traditional um, uh, form is, um, you know, is understood to be as, uh, you know, it's accepted as an identity and people take that on as, as an identity formation for themselves. That's correct. I mean, people do it all the time. We do it even with you guys on the left and people in the centre and the right. People, you know, people always sort of... It doesn't mean that you can't then question that view and it doesn't mean that you can't not. And if we're going to go down that road, then that's a slippery slope to what else are we letting go what else are we not challenging. And if we look at the the, the way that honour-based um, violence is, if we look at the way that forced marriages female genital mutilation or even the abuse of apostates within my research, at the end of the day, if people looking at that aren't feeling empowered enough to go, we need to challenge that idea, then there's something not that great within society right now.
0: Hmm. Callum, you want to come back on a point?
1: Uh yeah. So earlier Callum, you, you mentioned about um sort of not having any familiarity with religion or, you know, not having that upbringing, And and sort of further to that, not that I would call you ignorant, but there is certainly if we open the door to, you know, anybody having a, a critique of religion or of people's culture, then what you get is some people that are extremely ignorant, you get your Tommy Robinsons of the world, you know, and that opens the door to racism and discrimination. And I and I think as somebody on the left, I, I think that's the problem, it's 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 about having a bit of nuance because I think you're completely right, Harry, in saying that any idea should be critiqued. And that's absolutely right. As people that are interested in politics or, or religion or psychology or anything, I think we should be looking at stuff and, and critiquing it. And that's and that's absolutely right. And that's human. But we've also got to remember as a society that some people do take critiquing to that next level, to that area of, of, of degrading people's digni- dignity. And that comes from ignorance. That comes from a lack of exposure to different cultures, different religions, and then they misunderstand it, or they tarnish one religion with the brush of of the the ill doing of of a couple of individuals, which which I think is is a concern of mine when it comes to your critique. And I just wonder what you'd think of that. And this
0: is and this is just, just uh, let Harry Harry come back just in a second. Just in my defence, um, you know, I I am educated about. I, 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 so, I, I my, my 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 issue is that i'm not of these faiths um and so therefore it's difficult for me to challenge from the outside i feel sometimes I, although i find um harry's thoughts on it interesting i'll just go back to him now but i just want to clarify that point harry
2: yeah i i think that um uh, this is this is this is the this is the issue in itself is that it's the way that the the way that perhaps the left look at critiquing and criticizing religion, culture, tradition, and 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 provide an opportunity to to go, you know, to take a step back and go, actually, what's going on here? Um, the thought of not being able to do that means that we're then ignoring the abuses within that, and um, you know, we're we're ignoring the 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 way that um, that people may be treated. Um, on people that may be actually abused. Um and actually by, by holding that stance, what we're then doing is we're then providing um a kind of breeding ground for, for for being unable to being able to uh question it. And this kind of view of um you know the the, the thought that we I, I think it's very concerning within society when something isn't open to be scrutinized and questioned. And I think that if if we're going to do this from a point of view of saying that you know I don't want to come about as, as you know the, the concerns of that are people or or how that might be construed as being racist or how that we be construed as being um, you know a targeting and uh, you know a, a, a group of people in itself, I think that if if we are looking at and I and this is the, and this is the thing it comes back to the openness that we have within the society itself. At the moment, we have a, a rhetoric where any critique or any opportunity to question what's going on ha- is being kind of combated with this kind of romanticism of 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 the of where kind of of all the stature or the or the or the position that religion and culture therefore or tradition therefore have, which then yeah. makes it untouchable to even look at it with a with an open scrutiny. And I think that. By by having that that fear of being unable to do so, we're then we then slipping into this kind of um, phenomenon where where we where, we're strong, where we then won't be able to challenge, you know, um, or criticize. I think it's that it's kind of like that um, it, it's kind of like that Voldemort effect, if anything, where you know your people are so fearful of 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 um, of saying his name and deny and, and refusing to believe that he's still a, still exists, um, and it's that kind of hysteria that that then gets created into this notion of of we can we can't then challenge or question or think about things without um, and and the thing you can do that, but and still maintain the dignity of the person whilst doing it. You know, I, there's 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 an absolute way of doing that by ensuring that you're not you know ad hominem attack on people. It doesn't you know yeah, I'm sure you don't do that and, and making sure that it's it's saying that it's kind of it's kind of basically saying that you know if um you know uh, you, you can use kind of like a, a random example of you know like a uh, like a general example of saying like smoking is bad doesn't mean that you're then stating that every single person that smokes or every per- you know or every smoker is a bad person you can talk about the thing in itself but you're not ad homining attacking one person or a person within it which ali Rivsey argues and i think that by by having that understanding we can then have a society where we're more likely to do so by not doing that we're then i mean there are there are countless a number of victims that are then being left as a result of that rhetoric so again i i would argue very strongly as well even to callum that just for for the reason of not being brought up in a religion and not having those views doesn't mean that you weren't brought up in society today, doesn't mean you don't have a view, and doesn't mean that you don't have a thought on where things are at. Now, whether you feel like you're able to have those views is also concerning, because that's, because you're human, every human being has has a thought and a process. So again, move it away from the, you know, keep the dignity of the person, that's fine, but at the end of the day, that's, That's
0: the society that we need to aspire to. Hmm. So keep the dignity of the person is the primary thing. We're all part of a society um, and no idea is above scrutiny. Um, I wish this debate could go on. Um, It's really, really interesting. We don't get to talk about this issue often enough uh, in politics. I think certainly uh, given the degree of... Toxic debate, actually, I would say about religion over the over most of my political career as well. Maybe we do need to have more uh, education on how how to discuss religious issues. I think that's quite clear. Um, Bradley is sending me messages saying that he's got to go, unfortunately. Um, So I think we're going to uh, end it here. Um, but thank you very much, uh, Harry, for joining us. Um, I'm sure we will have uh, more opportunities to uh, talk about this in the future. Uh, and I hope you'll consider coming back on again as well.
2: Yeah, well, it'll be good um, to talk about the research at least one point, one day.
0: Yeah. <laughs> good. Excellent. All right. Well, um, thank you. We'll be uh, back next week, I hope. Um, I, will, uh, who, I think we've got Mary McKay coming uh, coming next week to talk about her article. Yeah. We'll uh, um and uh yeah we'll keep we'll keep you updated on that. So for now it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from Callum. Goodbye everyone, have a safe week. Bradley?
3: Yeah, bye folks. Um and thanks to Harry for coming on the show.
0: And Harry Perek. Thank you. And we will see you next time.